But if we use the term salesperson in a more discriminating way to refer to somebody who actively pursues business as opposed to someone who simply processes inbound transactions, then um, a, a win rate will always be single digits. And the only reason why it would appear to be double digits is because of the fact that the organization have created this bizarre system that allows salespeople to hide a bunch of their activity. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm chatting again to Justin Rothmarsh, the author of The Machine. So today I'm chatting to Justin, we're talking about lifetime value and customer acquisition cost, LTV to CAC. We're talking about how you work that out, how you then re-engineer that into a number of salespeople and what, how you then measure the success of that sales team so that you can make sure that it works and then scale the hell out of it. We talk about managers versus supervisors. We talk about the mindset that CEOs and businesses might have around incrementalism versus aggressively growing their business. Um, Yeah, revenue as a performance indicator. We dig into that a bit. So look, a great conversation. We had a great time. I hope you enjoy it. My name's Justin Rothmarsh. What do I do? I'm the founder and uh, I guess president of a business called Ballistics um, uh, that's been around for 24 years. I'm based in Los Angeles, although I grew up in Australia. What do I do? Well, that's what I do. I wrote a book, too. <laughs> Called The Machine? Called The Machine, which a few people have read. Yeah. And what's it about? Well, it's about it's ostensibly about sales. Uh, it, it's, it probably covers more territory than sales. It's, it's, it sales is the hook. It's about how to grow a business r- rapidly, um, but it's written from the perspective of sales. Uh, and it recommends a complete kind of redesign of the sales function, radical redesign of the sales function. And also, unlike most sales books, I don't think there's anything in there about how to sell. It's just, it's about no. how to structure your business to make sales possible. Yeah, well, I figured if I was going to write a book for senior executives on how to design a modern manufacturing plant, I probably wouldn't include a chapter on how to operate a sheet metal press. <laughs> And uh, you were good enough to come over and sp- we ran a summit uh, on the farm in September and you were good enough to come over and speak at that. And we've got you coming back over in January, 27th yeah. of January. And you had a good turnout of the, uh, at the summit in spite of my attendance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it, and it, was, it feels like that was the last time it was 27 degrees in the UK. It's got pretty cold since then. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you're back on the 27th. Uh, one of the things I thought we should, before we get in and because we've done and this is our second podcast there's another one where we i suppose we talk about the machine but one of the things that uh i suppose it's um it still makes me chuckle particularly when i talk to rob belgrave at why hive because you made a comment about the difference how how you believe ceos have been duped by salespeople, particularly this difference between prospecting and selling and so I thought I might start by there, because then if people are only going to listen to the first five minutes and come and see you in January, this gives a, I thought this gives a good flavor of, of what you're about. Sure. So it's, it's interesting. You have these two terms that mean roughly the same thing. Um, you have what salespeople call uh, prospecting, and then you have what executives, not marketing people, but you have what executives call marketing. And and I guess there's this lazy assumption in the executive suite that marketing means generating fodder for salespeople. And uh, 
salespeople's perspective is, well, no, that fodder's not worth much. In order to generate viable sales opportunities, it's necessary for them to prospect. So first off, you have this conflict of visions and conflict of terminology, which is never a healthy thing when you're trying to build a unified organization. But then when you dig into it, you realize that prospecting's an interesting amalgam of stuff that probably doesn't belong together. So salespeople are the same all over the world. If you, if you ask, well, how do you prospect? There are two things that they do. The first thing they do is they flick through a list of names looking for someone to approach. And that list might be in CRM. They might be paging through cards in CRM. Or it might be on LinkedIn or Navigator. If, they've, you know, if they're successful enough to be able to afford to subscribe to Navigator, then they'll flick through names in Navigator. Um, so flicking through names is step number one. And then step number two is this weird thing that they call qualification. And qualification involves initial outreach to a prospective customer where they interview the potential customer to see if this potential customer is in fact worthy of their valuable time. So they reach out to some un poor unsuspecting customer and they attempt to discover as rap as soon as possible in their interaction with them whether or not they have money to spend. Do you have budget? And uh, if they do have budget, uh, uh, how soon until they imagine, you know, cutting a check? And, and if the salesperson discovers that they're talking to somebody who's dumb enough to admit talking to a stranger on the telephone for the first time that, yes, they have budget, and yes, they're in the process of cutting a check for a stranger, then the salesperson will deem that opportunity to be qualified and they will invest further effort in it. Otherwise, they won't. Otherwise, they won't because, you know, that opportunity wasn't qualified. It was an you know, unqualified opportunity, which means not an opportunity at all. So you end up in this weird situation where salespeople have an incredible win rate. You know, they win. You go and check in Salesforce and you discover that your sales team are winning 20% of sales opportunities. How can that be? Obviously, it can't be that way. You know, and, and the, the only way it gets to look that way is because of dark matter. <laughs> the universe is full of dark matter. In other words, in this case, it's all the effort expended that's untracked or effort that's assigned to, uh, to leads in the lead module as opposed to uh, organizations in the organization module. So the, the, now the scary thing is that most uh, um, sales executives, but even senior executives, uh, accept this behavior and nobody seems to have identified that it's, that it's idiotic and destructive. It's sanctioned by senior executives the world over. Everyone it, thinks it's normal and healthy. Because it's what people do. Yeah, it's what people do. But it's stupid. And you, all you have to do is peel the lid off it and have a quick look inside, and, and it, it will become immediately apparent to any thinking human being that this is not value-adding, this is value-destroying behavior. And... That 20% win rate, do you think that's good or bad? It's terrible. The only way that a salesperson can have a 20% win rate is to avoid talking to people. So what should it be? In the organizations that ballistics... Single digits. In every case, if an organization, if the economics of an organization are such that they can justify having salespeople, then their win rate should be single digits. Huh. If the win rate is greater than single digits, the economics of the organization will not support the existence of salespeople. I mean, it might in the sense that, 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 that you might call a, carelessly call a cashier a salesperson. So, you know, Sainsbury's, you know, their, their cashiers have an incredible win rate, obviously. <laughs> Close to <laughs> 100%. Yes, yeah, so, some of the best ones are. Some of the best ones can average 100%. Um, but, but if we use the term salesperson in a more discriminating way to refer to somebody who actively pursues business as opposed to someone who simply processes inbound transactions, then um, the win rate will always be single digits. And the only reason why it would appear to be double digits is because of the fact that, uh, that the organization have created this bizarre system that allows salespeople to hide a bunch of their activity. And so instead what you're doing is you're speaking to, you know, you have, you've got total transparency over activity and you're speaking to people who don't have a budget to get them to do something that they weren't planning already to do this morning when they woke up. 
Yeah, I mean, to keep my business alive, I have to generate million, millions of dollars a, a year, many millions of dollars a year to feed all the hungry souls um, who work for us. And most of that revenue has to come from convincing people who don't have budget and who aren't planning on making a purchase from ballistics to give us money. And to my mind, that's the role of a salesperson, to go and find people who aren't planning on spending money with you and convince them to. And if I was looking for a name for somebody who welcomed individuals who have budget and are in the process of, of, hand, of, of cutting a check, I wouldn't call that person a, a, a salesperson. I'd call them a customer service rep. And I'd pay them less than 50K a year. And then things like responsiveness and politeness and stuff are more important than yeah. the ability to have a selling conversation and most organizations that we work with their sales what they call their sales team is a bunch of overpaid underworked custom mobile mobile customer service reps and they and they wonder why the business isn't growing faster and they and their solution to it is to is to either buy new technology which always works or (laughs) (laughs) or to or to send the salespeople off for some sales training which would be like sending me to a chicken sexing lesson. <laughs> it would be useful if I ever did it. <laughs> the the thing, so are your clients different in that the CEO and the leadership teams of most of your clients don't come from a sales background? Um, most of them don't. I think we tend to appeal naturally to organizations where the leadership team is strong in operations. So they come from a manufacturing or distribution background. They're they're the folks who like us a lot. Although we do have some clients where the CEO has come from a sales background, but but they they have spent enough in sales, they've spent enough time in sales to to recognize the bullshit. Um, So, you know, the folks who, the senior executives who like us have either been involved in sales enough to know where all the bodies are buried or they haven't been involved in sales at all. They've come from an operations background. And uh, they like that because you bring sort of that operations approach yes. to, to building a sales organization. Yeah. The, the senior executives who have deep sales experience like us because They've known about the BS for years, but they've never felt comfortable talking about it because they've never taken the time to kind of reason from first principles to figure out, you know, to validate their suspicion that that a, a lot of the sales orthodoxy is a big pile of steaming BS. Operations people know it is, but they have the same problem that, you know, they haven't reasoned from first principles to to, to feel confident enough to point to it and say this is, you know, He's not the messiah. He's just a naughty little boy. Who, who we pay lots of money to. What's that? Who we pay lots what? of money. The salespeople, we pay them lots of money. Um, yeah. And, and, we- and I think it's a part of the organization that, it's, that that's clearly been dysfunctional, but there's been so many opportunities to improve the performance of business without having to mess with sales. It's been convenient to just leave it alone. You know, Silicon Valley used to refer to salespeople as, um, what was the term? Coin-operated idiots. And, and in, in Silicon Valley today, that term's pretty much outlawed. They're all politically correct over there now. Um, but there's still a memory that that's how folks used to refer to salespeople. And, and folks joke about it in, you know, after hours in dark conference rooms. Um, <laughs> but I think that... There's been this view for, uh, in recent history that sales is this necessary evil that you kind of plug into an enterprise as an accelerant. But it's it's and, and I would agree with that. I would say the sales function, it, 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 the sales function should be viewed as an accelerant. It sh- it shouldn't be viewed as a fundamental piece of the growth formula, because if it is a fundamental component of the growth formula, then you've probably got something wrong with your product or your operational performance. In other words, if your business isn't growing without sales, it may not be a sales problem. It may be a, design, a, a, you know, a problem with your product or a problem with your delivery. And I have, well, I have that conversation with clients or prospects on 
fairly regular basis. They say, Dom, I think we've got this sales problem. I'd like you to have a chat with us. And then you have a conversation with them and you say, so you've got a clearly defined core customer. Well, you know, we've got quite a few core customers. Okay. Yeah. Um, and your and- product's clearly differentiated from your competitors. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and- it's mostly the same. Yeah. And you and- charge a bit more because of the service we, we and- offer. And your net promoter <laughs> score. Well, oh, yeah. I mean, somebody said to me the other day, I don't really want to do net promoter score because I'm worried what the answer will be. It's like, no, yeah. I think you know what the answer is going to be. So there's, you're absolutely right. It's like it's broken, and and somehow we can't find a good enough salespeople to join our organization and to sell our stuff. It's like, hmm, not because re- why would any great salesperson drive you join your organization if you're undifferentiated and just a bit rubbish? Yeah, and I think before before I, I while it's fun to. Uh, to maraud and uh, to to wreak havoc and you know poke a stick in everyone's little ant farms ant ant nests. Uh, do, you don't have ant nests in the UK in Australia. Yeah, they have the we, we ant do, ma- but they're not. We do, do but they're okay. not. They're not eight foot tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Australia, we you'd poke them with a stick and then you'd run before the ants um, in, enveloped you. Um, so while it's fun to kind of do that, I I think that there are some businesses that have a, a, a proper interest in aggressive growth and there there are others that je- that really don't and they'll they'll never say that at like a you know a vistage group or an eo meeting or something everybody professes to be serious about growth but a lot of businesses aren't and they don't need to be and and we're probably in the latter category you know we have a good little business here it's a, it's 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 a decent revenue it's nicely profitable but it's not the type of business that's going to become a 50 million or 100 million dollar business anymore and yours isn't either nope and investors venture capitalists or private equity folks would call this a lifestyle business and in in their circles it's an insult but there's nothing <laughs> wrong with having a lifestyle business especially if you know you can drive a nice car and live in a nice house and have, have a relaxing life. It's, and I think that if, if it's not a growth business, the, 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 my message probably isn't that relevant. But if it is a growth business, then I think the message is extremely relevant. And what, what do you think has to change from going from being a sort of uh, incremental business to an aggressive business? Everything. <laughs> can the say, can starting the, with the executive starting with the executive team you've got to change them all yeah yeah probably um, <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so so we don't try and change businesses uh i remember hearing zig ziglar say once i don't tra- if 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 you've heard this before then bugger off he didn't say that but it was, that was kind of the thrust of what he was saying he was saying i don't change my content i change my audiences um <laughs> uh, and one, one, one thing I discovered years ago is, is there's no money in trying to convince small businesses to become big businesses because most of them don't want to be. That What you need to do is to find businesses that are already on the growth track and they're generally not small. And if they are small, then they're only small for five minutes. Mm-hmm. If they've been small for 10 years, they're not growth businesses. And, and, and we, we, we don't want to work with them because it's unless they've recently been acquired by somebody who plans to grow them. But more practically, I think you need different metrics. The, the system of measurements need to be set up different. And we talked about this before the podcast, too, that um, – your growth measurements need to be completely separate from your business as usual type measurements. Around revenue and profit and in fact. Uh, Yeah. So you need to separate out the way revenue is concerned. You need to separate, separate out the revenue that, uh, that, that is associated with new business that you've won from revenue that is business as usual type business. You should never, ever blend those two together. So you should never, ever uh, publicize a combined revenue number. Uh, Now, uh, I mean, obviously, you've got to put it on your tax return and so on. But but when we're talking about metrics that you publicize in the organization with an, with a, with with an expectation that those metrics are going to have a an effect on a positive effect on behavior, you should never publicize a total revenue number. You should always split out the business as usual number from the new business number. Over over what period? Uh, you know, like 
is it in the quarter, in the 12 months? Because I could see you could win a piece of business and then it would continue to grow. And so are you, are you capturing that as a sort of a new business win and incremental revenue in the quarter in the year? And then next year it just becomes BAU? Yeah, that's a good point. I think the most important thing is you shouldn't combine the BAU revenue with the with the new business. You have to split out the new business. Your point is, well, can you if if you're reporting the business as usual revenue, can you include the new business? And I would say you probably shouldn't, but practically you can because it tends to be inconsequential. Okay. In other words, if you have a ten million dollar business, in any given year the the revenue that represents new business one in that period in that year is probably only a million bucks and you probably would find that the revenue now this is different in a project type environment but in a normal business you would probably find that the revenue that's associated with business that's been won in new business that's been won in that period is inconsequential enough that it amounts to less than the normal variation in revenues. Okay. Uh, in other words, it's indistinguishable from the noise, which is a big problem B- because if you don't look for it, you don't see it. So this is why you have to split out the revenue associated with new business. And, and we would never report it as month-to-month revenue. We would, we would recognize the lifetime value of that account or the lifetime value of that new category of business at the point at which it's won. Okay. As a way of working out whether your in, your return on investment for trying to go after and win new business is working. Y- yes. Uh, uh, yes. And uh, the reason we should be reporting the lifetime value is because in our world, salespeople have nothing to do with existing accounts or existing business. Salespeople are focusing only on pursuing new business. So we don't want to give salespeople any credit for business as usual. So to, to make this practical, if you're a salesperson and you are pursuing a new account and you convince them to transact with you the first time, the value of that initial transaction might be $5,000. But you will know if you do a study on all, if, if you have someone in your finance department, go and do a study of all of the similar transactions to this one and calculate what the lifetime value of those accounts is on average. So every time we win an account like this, the lifetime value of the account ends up being 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 times the initial monthly spend. And, and what, what you need to do is to come up with some sort of formula that allows you to calculate, it's almost the net present value of that mm-hmm. initial income. And we would report the net present value number, not the initial income. So we don't care about the $5,000. We don't want to report that. Uh, I mean, the $5,000 will be represented in the business as usual revenue. But what we want to recognize in the sales department and what we want to make sure that we show the senior executive team is the net present value of that chunk of business that was just one in sales. And because you're not paying salespeople commission in your world, we're not. It doesn't matter. Yeah, because I'm just thinking about some people listening to this going, oh, my God, you calculate that and then you, and then you pay commission? No. In your world, no, in your world there's no commission. These are intrinsically the, motivated salespeople. The critical number that the executive team needs to calculate is the return on salesperson. Yeah. So we pay a salesperson 100K, let's say, a, a, a year. So let's call that you know, $9,000 a month you pay a salesperson. The critical number is what's the relationship between – uh, what you what you pay a salesperson a month, and the contribution margin associated with that chunk of new business. So let's say a five thousand dollar transaction. You gross it up for lifetime value by multiplying it by twenty. Let's say so you take five thousand, uh, and it becomes uh, twenty thousand dollars. No, the twenty times five it becomes a hundred thousand dollars, and then. You you, uh, you determine what's the margin and you subtract that. That gives you a contribution margin. So let's say y- your margin is 50%. So that drops it back down to 50. So the net present value of that is $50,000 in margin. Um, now, if a salesperson wins one of those a month, you're paying nine to generate 50. You might want to do that every day. Yeah. I mean, if if I found a machine like that at Las Vegas, I'd pull that handle all day long <laughs> with those with that kind of return. But the the shocking thing is, for, for years we've been building 
sales teams for organizations and we can't convince or we struggle to convince folks to 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 do this to take these numbers seriously um people you know we'll have a meeting with a board member and say look there's some interesting stuff that you're doing over there but i was looking at the pnl the other day and and i don't see any meaningful impact and i'll say to them well hang on hang on hang on you're a hundred million dollar business we built an initial proof of concept and we have four salespeople producing incredible results. But of course, in aggregate, the, the, the revenue that they're generating is de minimis. It's less than the normal variation in revenue from month to month, which means it's invisible. So it is impossible for you to see the impact of the team that we've built if you're looking at the profit and loss. Because you need to scale it up. You need, yeah. you need to decide. Just like you, it's you impossible need... for you to see your Range Rover if you've got your head in the loop. <laughs> but it's not in there. You, so so uh, you need to work out what impact you're trying to have and then reverse engineer it from there. What if what's the do you do you have a rule of thumb heuristic for the sort of net present value of gross margin that you want to see as a ratio against sales sales cost? Yeah, we think of you know three or four times. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we would expect a salesperson to generate three or four times their salary cost in net new business, which is the contribution margin associated with the lifetime value. Okay, and if you can't get if you haven't got that lifetime value, one of the things I often do is is say, you know, we do, you know, you say, well, what's the churn on that customer type of customer? Maybe mm. it's twenty percent. Okay, so you, if you churn them all, you, that would take five years. And then people sometimes think that five, that five years is too long. So I, I, I don't mind. Like, let's pick one year, two years. Like pick a number and multiply it up. But somehow, yeah. It's- my advice, if is if if the if you think the average is more than three more than three years, call it three years. Cap it at three years. Um. So so the you would be amazed how reluctant executives are, particularly sales executives, but even senior executives to do the lifetime value calculation and to make the estimate. And, a, a, and a, a problem we have with a lot of organizations, and I had a stand-up fight with someone where he got upset and stormed out of the room just a, a couple of months ago over this, is that um, what he was doing was he was creating sales opportunities and pushing them to the sales team. And in CRM, the value of those opportunities was zero. And I said to him, why do these opportunities not have a value associated with them? He said, well, we don't know what it is. I said, well, but, but hang on, you, can have a, you know it's you greater can have a, than zero. You can have a punt at it. You know it's greater than zero. He said, I don't. I said, you do, because if you knew for sure it was zero, it wouldn't be called an opportunity in the first place, would it? <laughs> so we know it's greater than zero. So so Goldratt, Ellie Goldratt used to say, it's better to be vaguely right than precisely wrong. And I don't think that's his quote. I think it came from, in fact, it, that's definitely not his quote. It came from someone else but it's an important quote it's it's better to be vaguely right than precisely wrong this is a perfect example of being precisely wrong you're creating an opportunity you're pushing it to a salesperson you're assigning zero dollars as the value of that opportunity that that is precisely wrong you know with absolute certainty that the value of that opportunity is not zero it must be greater than zero but because you don't know for sure what it is you're going to call it zero so, uh, you know, it's idiotic. And I think there's this, engineers talk about the difference between accuracy and precision. And, you know, there are certain circumstances where you need accuracy and there are other circumstances where you need precision. And if you pursue one in the wrong circumstance, it can be very dangerous. And this is an example of pursuing pre- 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 uh, precision. You, you know, the, the pursuit of pre- precision le- leads the sales manager to be more comfortable nominating the value at zero than it is taking a punt. Um, but you need to take a punt. We're de- the nature of sales is it's we're dealing with probable. It's a probabilistic environment. We have to be prepared to deal with uncertainty. Otherwise, we should get out of the kitchen. So if you uh, you work out what growth you'd like, net new revenue growth, what the lifetime value of that is over the next three years, you work out what growth level you want. You're going to have salespeople closing deals in single digits. So you can probably estimate from the growth you want how many salespeople you're going to need. Well, but there's, so I would say if you figure out the growth you want in, in, in absolute dollars, we want you know $5 million of new business, 
then you could get the next step backwards would be what well, the number of the how many deals do we have to do yeah average order value provide that yeah and then um at what rate would we expect a salesperson to do these deals you know one a month one every two months yeah and it's sort of and that's going to give you the number of salespeople. complexity and length of sales cycle yeah yeah and so you're going to end yep. up with the number That'll of salespeople. and yeah. um, and what about adding on the incremental cost around customer services and marketing because uh, one of the one of the things is is you know quite often talk to people and we, we well they're not incremental costs generally because if let's say you fired your whole sales team you would still have a customer service team presumably okay so they're fixed they're fixed costs so i mean lesson number one in accounting is that um at a, at a long enough time scale all costs are fully variable and on a short enough time scale all costs are fully fixed so you can't talk about fixed versus variable without nom without first nominating a time scale an event horizon not an event horizon a time horizon well so if you so, yeah because if you uh, if you've got your LTV, your lifetime value, sort of, you know, yeah. average order value multiplied up three years worth, um, yep. and then you've got your uh, your CAC, your customer acquisition cost. I was just thinking, uh, if I've got salespeople, I've got other acquisition costs in, in the marketing team, and I, I'm just thinking, sometimes I go and talk to clients, and they have no, they don't have this mechanism for doing a calculation, and they're just, they're not spending enough. So... They, yeah, just, so generally just, you can ignore all those other. Generally, you can ignore all those other costs, and we would make these decisions make these decisions on a pure, purely marginal basis. Okay. Um, now that may not be strictly true. The organization might say, "Well, if we had no salespeople, none at all, then we wouldn't have a marketing department because we wouldn't need them, and we wouldn't have a sales manager because we wouldn't need a sales manager either." But is going to zero a, a viable prospect, and if it's not, then okay, well. Why are we even having this discussion? You, you, you're always going to have some salespeople, which means you're going to need some kind of marketing department, and you probably need someone to lose. So let's treat them as a fixed cost, and let's just and let's just do, do the math on the basis of the variable costs, which is the salesperson's salary compared with the lifetime value. And you might want to include promotional costs in there. You, you know, if if you are purchasing lists or sending packets of stuff to people, you might want to include the, the the fully variable costs associated with the pursuit of sales opportunities. But but you want to simplify it down and calculate it on a marginal basis. It's tricky enough as it is. Okay. So that gets us, we end up with a CAC and LTV. We end up working out how many salespeople we can hire or that we need to hire to, to hit our number. Yeah, so if you're a growth, if you're a growth business – you're going to end up, when you do the maths, realizing that the return that you get on salespeople is significant. You'll end up discovering you're getting a four, five, six times return on the monthly cost of a salesperson in, in terms of uh, you know, the net present value of the deals they win. The limiting factor is going to be cash flow. Because if we're valuing a deal at $50,000 throughput or, or contribution margin, uh, you're not banking. You're only banking fifty thousand. You're sorry. You're only banking five thousand dollars in month one. It's it's going to take uh, three years to realize that full lifetime value. Mm -hmm. So um, the economics of it are that you should employ as many salespeople as the market will bear. But uh, the commercials are that you're limited by cash flow. And of course, this is the. This is the math that happens in Silicon Valley every day with these fast-growth startups. You know, the reason some of these businesses are raising billions of dollars, small businesses are raising literally billions of dollars, uh, is that um, they have fantastic unit economics is the term that's used. And really what that means is there's a huge delta between the acquisition cost, customer acquisition cost and the lifetime value. And they're raising billions of dollars on the basis of that delta. And the reason they need to raise billions of dollars is to scale quickly because of the fact that the business will be cash flow negative for a long period of time. As they build this huge sales engine. Yeah. And not just a sales engine, but build the list, the customer list. Uh, um, Uber is a perfect example. Uh, or Amazon even. Um, 
And and I think we were talking before about the difference between a growth business and a you know an aggressive growth and incremental growth. And understanding this stuff is and getting comfortable with this stuff is the is probably the most critical change that needs to occur in the executive suite. What do you um, what do you think about hiring salespeople? You guys hire loads of salespeople, don't you? For clients all over we the do. world. What what do you look for in a salesperson that is different to, I don't know. I, well, there's, I just, I keep, I, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for the top, saying to clients, look for the top 10% of available talent. And I'm always drawn back to the Harvard Business Review article, Anatomy of a High-Performing Salesperson, where they reckoned that 85% of salespeople never hit a target anywhere ever. Yeah. And only 15% of salespeople are worth hiring because they'll hit a target in multiple places. Um, and so I, I, I'm always, you know, I'm I'm amazed because if you were a if you were a programmer and you were as crap as the average salesperson, you'd get fired really quickly because you wouldn't be able to write any code. Or if you were a doctor, you you know after ten dead patients, you wouldn't be able to persuade anybody else to do yeah. an operation. Whereas poor salespeople just seem to stay in jobs and get rehired over and over and yeah. over and over and over again. So I think we need to be realistic first. If we're working with an organization that sells industrial components, which is what we do a lot, you know, um, and, and, and it doesn't have to be industrial components. It, it, there's any number of boring things that you could be selling. And I mean boring from the perspective of a salesperson whose attention you're trying to um, grab. But if, if, you're, if you're selling industrial components, you are not going to hire salespeople from the top 10%. Because those salespeople are going to work for SAP or for Elon Musk over at, you know, and, and those, the, the, you, you, you don't have the ability to attract the top 10%. And if somebody accepts a sales role working with you, it, it's a pretty good indication that they're probably not in the top percent. Now, now, they might be. They might take the job because it suits them at their stage in life. You're right next door. The, your, the, your business is right next door to where they live or something. But but if you want to build a sales team with ten or fifteen or twenty people in it, you're not going to. You, the, the team is not going to be the top ten percent of British salespeople. Oh, because they're not going to want to work. For oh, it's you. in a given job, a given location, and a given salary. So absolutely, it's 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 the top ten percent <laughs> that you can attract and afford. Yeah, yeah. I remember we were recruiting a salesperson once. I, I remember meeting a guy who fascinated me. In fact, I, we didn't hire him, but I, I was so fascinated by him. We went out for we went out for lunch and we had a great conversation. I should have hired him because the guy who I did hire, who I thought was going to be a better salesperson, turned out to be an idiot. But <laughs> this guy had a PH, PhD in mathematics, and he worked for the Hong the the uh, the Hong Kong Bank, whatever it's called, the big one. Uh, HSBC. HSBC worked for H, and he was a, a, a derivatives. Uh, he sold derivatives contracts, and he travelled the world selling these things around the world. And his last year, his last year, he earned four hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars working for HSBC, um, living in Hong Kong. And he'd had to return to Australia. I think there'd been a medical emergency with his wife or something. He was sick of not having a job. He didn't really need to work, but he wanted to do something interesting. And he interviewed for our job and he thought it was interesting. And he was a fascinating guy, very, very clever. I would say he, that was someone who would be, I would put him in the top 10% of salespeople looking, looking back. He, 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 didn't ha he didn't have the, I made the mistake of not hiring him because he didn't have the sort of sizzle. I, I, I thought I'm gonna hire someone who's not like me, someone who's not offensive to customers. <laughs> You, you know, and, and I hired this guy who, in retrospect, would have been a great customer service rep because he was very friendly, very agreeable. Uh, um, but he was a terrible salesperson. He couldn't sell a damn thing. And, and uh, I realized in retrospect that, that I'm probably a reasonably good salesperson because I am generally offensive. And, and this guy was, was very similar. You, you know. And then, then that book, that, that Harvard Business Review article came out talking about the challenger sale yeah. and and that I think for a lot of pe folks was a breath of fresh air because it explained why you know the the top ten percent of salespeople are, are, are the those challenger type in, individuals. So I think what you want to do is design a sales function that doesn't require the top ten percent, or 
define the pool from which you're drawing salespeople such that you're not looking for the top 10% in Britain. You're looking for the top 10% in Suffolk that are interested in working in manufacturing, that come from manufacturing sales yeah. background or something. Yeah. Then, it's, then it's more realistic. And so build, you're building a you're building a system rather than trying to find, attract, an, attract a unicorn or yeah. a rainmaker or something. I had a friend years ago, he had a printing business and I used to joke with him, Brian, we'd skied together and I used to joke. I said, you don't have a printing business. Brian, you have an incub- you've, you've built yourself an incubator for competitors. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was a great salesperson. What he did was he went out and looked for other great salespeople and he hired them and he paid them commission. They worked, f- they worked for him and they had, they had a ball and they made lots of money for like three months. And then they left and s- because they realized you could buy cheap printers go in and out of business all the time and you can buy secondhand printing equipment really, really cheap. And you can set up a printing business in about 10 minutes for about 10 quid. Yeah. So and if you're, you and know, if you're a sales guy, then th- that you, you can feed yourself yeah. all day long. Printers are dime a dozen. So, I mean, Brian had been, he was very successful financially and, he, and he'd been in the business for, for years, but you surveyed the landscape in Brisbane of printing companies and a significant percentage of them were startups that were incubated by him. And we laughed about it. He didn't care because he was in the process of selling the business and he moved on from printing to other things and continued to be successful. But it was true, the, you know, and, and that's a mistake that organizations want. You don't want to look to a salesperson as a solution to a sales problem. You want to build a sales, you want to build a process that you can plug you know, reasonably capable, reasonably well-intentioned individuals into and have them produce outsized results. Yes. And then you want to scale the crap out of it. You're not going to build a fast-growth business by hiring unicorns. You're going to build a fast-growth business by, you know, building a team of individuals who manage to generate some reasonable margin of LTV compared to CAC, or CAC compared to LTV, and then you're going to scale up that team. You're going to go from from three of them to six of them to twelve of them. And is, is three is three the smallest unit size to start with? We think of three as being the minimum viable size because you need a supervisor. Okay. Uh, you have to have a supervisor in order to have a sales team. You cannot have an unsupervised sales it, team. Does the supervisor sell? Is it a player coach or is the supervisor no, a full time no, role? No, they supervise. Okay. Full-time supervisor. Okay, so two salespeople and one supervisor or three salespeople and one supervisor? Three salespeople and one supervisor. Okay. Now, you can cheat if you're a small business. We, we've, there's a few ways you can cheat. You know, we'll sometimes say, well, we will share the same supervisor between the customer service team and the sales team, and then maybe we can have two plus one. But even two plus one doesn't work because especially if you're building an inside sales team along the lines that we advocate for the first time, which generally means even an organization with a legacy sales team, it's a new build because your legacy salespeople will not want to play the game according to our rules. <laughs> so we're building a new team from scratch. Even if you start with two plus one, it's, it's, still, not a, it's still not smart because if one person leaves, as they will, if this is your first crack at it, then you're down to one. Mm-hmm. And one person does not a sales team make. So supervisor and three? Supervisor and three is a minimum viable size. And how many do you outsource the marketing if you're starting? Do you do that campaign development in-house? How many more people do you need to do that, do you reckon? Yeah, so marketing's a whole Pandora's box. I, I, I don't know if you really want to lift the lid okay, off Okay, too long, too long. It's a whole podcast on its own, is it? So, so after we've finished kind of annoying the crap out of our VP of sales because all of this is foreign and strange and insulting – we then, we then have to kind of ostracize our marketing department because to, to generate sales opportunities at scale, the, the inbound marketing is not going to cut the mustard. Uh, we're we're going to need a complete rethink of how marketing is done. Um, and, and what that means is we're going to have to switch from inbound being the prime, primary modality to outbound being the primary mo- modality. Because you can't just you you simply cannot generate inbound opportunities at scale except in very special circumstances. So if you're a pool builder, and I'll use pool builder deliberately because HubSpot offer up 
as evidence of the power of inbound, a magical pool builder who was able to generate a torrent of inbound inquiries for his pool building business. Now, it's a, it's, it's a trick. The trick is that this character uh, was a little bit like uh, Vaynerchuk um, in that he, he, he turned himself into a mini celebrity and he generated a large volume of inquiries using his celebrity. But most, most senior executives don't have the ability to do that. So if you're a pool builder and you want to you wanna grow your business aggressively, you cannot generate inbound opportunities at the rates necessary to... Um, now, particularly in a B2B environment, and B2C is a little bit different. But if you're looking, if you're operating in a commercial environment, B2B, you need your marketing department to understand that while inbound is great, it doesn't scale. So you need outbound. Your, your primary source of opportunities has to be outbound. So we need to come up with a compelling proposition, targeted at a particular market segment, a subset of your marketplace, and we need to build a list of the individuals who we want to go after, and then we need to serve up that list to salespeople and have them chase those individuals. And if the salespeople say, well, I don't like cold calling, we're going to say, well, sorry, we thought you signed up for a job in sales. And unfortunately, being a salesperson requires that you're comfortable talking to strangers. If you're scared of strangers, you probably shouldn't be in sales. Now, salespeople, when they, when they exhibit a fear of cold calling, uh, uh, there, there is often a problem there that management has to take responsibility for, and that's that management is expecting them to do the impossible. In other words, management is expecting them to take a wholly unappealing proposition and to start a conversation with strangers based upon that proposition, which, 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 salespeople, which salespeople will not be as successful at, unsurprisingly, and will not enjoy, unsurprisingly. So the job for the senior executive team is to come up with a truly compelling proposition. And a truly compelling proposition is one that a reasonably confident, competent, reasonably well-intentioned salesperson can take to a total stranger within the market segment and do a reasonably good job of starting a conversation with. So that's the responsibility of the senior executive team. Which comes back to the earlier conversation we were having around often clients who have a sales problem, the problem is not their sales, it's not with sales. No, the product sucks. Yeah. Or the service sucks, or they're undifferentiated, or they've got no target market, or they've got no core customer, yep. or all of the above. I, m- yeah. I remember speaking with the CEO and a sales director a couple of years ago, and I said, so tell me, what makes you different? And the pause, it must have gone on for two minutes. And eventually the CEO looked at me and he went, absolutely nothing. Okay. <laughs> well, that is honesty is definitely a point of difference. But they'd got to the they'd got to the, they'd got to the point that they had to fix it. Oh, the other one that people say a lot is, "Well, we care. We care. We care more than our competitors." Which, mm, which yeah. I'm, I'm never. I think they're in denial often. Those those people who think that means you apologize more when you deliver their order. Later. Yeah, it just it's just. I don't know. You apologize profusely as opposed to... Yeah, because you think about Amazon. Amazon don't go around saying, look, we care deeply. I mean, I've got no idea whether people at Amazon care or not. The thing is, I go online, I order a thing, it turns up tomorrow. I don't care whether they care or yeah. not, really. I'm, I'm wowed by their efficiency. Well, well they, they just delivered to you. They just demonstrated to you that they, that they do care. Yeah. There is no more visceral demonstration of how much a vendor cares than whether or not they deliver your stuff on time. Yeah, keep a, make a promise, keep a promise. Yeah. Yeah. So what uh, the um, supervisor manager thing, when you were talking there about having a small sales team with a supervisor, why is that not a small teams team sales team with a sales manager? So the mistake small businesses make is they, as, as they scale, they recognize the requirement for management, which is not a mistake. The mistake they make is, they skip over line management and go straight to middle management. So we have Bob, who's you know uh, good at operating a sheet metal press or a welding or selling or doing accounts or whatever. And Bob gets promoted to manager. But nobody bothers to specify exactly what manager means in that context. So what it ends up, so Bob ends up interpreting the title manager to mean middle manager. 
And then if you want to find Bob, you can go and check the corners of the building and, 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 and he'll be in a corner office somewhere, you know, poking around in Excel, trying to figure out how to build pivot tables so that he can generate fancy reports that no one's going to read because that's what Bob thinks that managers do. And the problem with that, aside from the fact that Bob isn't very good in Excel, is that nobody's supervising the individual contributors. And the problem with that, and this is something that executives don't seem to understand, is that the role of a supervisor is not to stop, is, is not discipline. The, the, the role of a capable supervisor is uh, to accelerate, uh, is, is to have a catalytic effect on individual contributors. I, I, uh, I like the, the, the skull example you know, the, the rowboats? Oh, like yeah, 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 Cambridge Cox, the boat race, the Cox. Yes, yeah, so, so you have a skull and, you know, you can have a, I think, a four-man skull, four-human skull that, you, you know, without a Cox and then you, you add a Cox. And it's well understood that when you add a Cox, you get a significant uplift in performance, which is strange when you consider the Cox is a dead weight. They don't row, they don't have any oars. So if you have a four-man Cox and you, a four-man skull, and, it, and, and the, the rowers can propel, propel it at a certain rate, you add a cox or a coxswain and uh, you get a significant increase in speed, a significant increase in speed in spite of the fact that you've added, that the weight of the craft has gone up by 25% and that additional weight is dead weight. So the, 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 it appears to be in conflict with the laws of physics. But... It turns out that the, the coxswain, as a, as a supervisor, of course, is, a, is an accelerant. And, and really, they, they do two things. Um, they, they, ca they cause the team to row together far more effectively than the team would if they were relying on their own kind of intuition. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that they do is they get to set race strategy, which is something that the, that the rowers aren't going to do absent the coxswain. So they get to choose, okay, we're going we're gonna to go slow in the beginning and we're going to sprint at the end, or we're going to sprint in the beginning and cruise to an easy victory. You know. So I think anybody who's rowed crew, nobody who's rowed crew would, would argue that they, they would rather operate in an unsupervised environment because they don't like discipline they would recognize that the coxswain is a valuable part of the team, just like the goalie is a valuable role within a soccer team. You wouldn't say, well, the goalie's a dead weight because they spend most of the time standing around. Uh, um, so the same thing applies in, in an organization. You've got, you, you know, you've got four customer service reps or you've got you know, six people in the accounts department or you've got 15 engineers or you've got four people, you know, 14 people on the shop floor you add a supervisor, the supervisor is an accelerant. They, the, the existence of a supervisor, if they're doing their thing properly, um, causes far better teamwork than you would have if you didn't have a supervisor. And it, uh, and, and it provides a person who has a, a general awareness of the environment as a whole, which the individuals don't have because they're focused on their own work centers. So in any environment where you have more than a couple of individual contributors, your next hire should always be a supervisor. Not, not for some philosophical reason, but for a practical financial reason. And that's because you get more value if, you th if your fourth hire is a supervisor than you would get if your fourth hire is one more individual contributor. Okay. That's the simple economics of it. And what, uh, when, if people come on the 27th of January down to, down to the farm to see you speak, what, what will they go away with at the end of the day? What's the outcome of a, of a day with you? Other than obviously you being a bit rude and abusive. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we could give them a handout, maybe. Oh, you think? Okay. Yeah, I, I give them a, and a business card or even a copy of the book. What if we gave them a copy Fantastic. of the book? Fantastic. Copy of the book, business card. What will they, what will they, yeah, what, and a sore head. Yeah. What will they know? <laughs> They'll have all their myths busted. Yeah. So the, the purpose of the day, it, it, I call the event a prescription for growth because that's really the takeaway that that I try and make sure folks leave with. So the, 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 most of the folks who attend these prescription for growth events, and we've been doing them in the States and Australia now for two years, this will be our first one in the UK, but most of the folks who attend these events have already read the machine. They already understand the theory. 
and they're not in, not really that interested in in one more keynote or one more seminar on the theory. What they're interested in doing is rolling up their sleeves and figuring out exactly how to apply it to their business. So it's light. the The day is light on theory and heavy on execution. And re- really, the purpose is to put all these folks in an environment where they're forced to come up with an executive with with an execution plan and to make some tough decisions. You know, maybe maybe if Freddie's a a, a a cancerous influence, a disruptive and cancerous influence on the sales team, and has been that way for the last fifteen years, maybe Freddie shouldn't work for us anymore. Yeah, toxic. And a maybe toxic, a toxic A. Yeah, and maybe with Freddie gone, we could build a small inside sales team and get proof of concept, and you know, re- rewrite the job descriptions for customer service and sales, and ac- make actual decisions. So the folks who attend these workshops, they they come with the theory already, okay. and so the, the I tried to write the machine in such a way that folks could read it and understand it and apply it without further assistance. And certainly we see examples of doing that. But we also see a lot of cases where folks make mistakes in the execution. And I think one of the challenges is if you charge into a new arena where you don't have a lot of experience and therefore don't have a lot of intuition, which which is the case for a lot of our clients, you, 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 don't, you can't tell the difference between stuff that's superficial and stuff that's fundamental. And if we're driving an, a, 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 an implementation of these ideas for our clients, our consultants have a really good understanding of the stuff that's fundamental that can't be changed and the stuff that's superficial that can easily be changed uh, because they know from experience and from making mistakes themselves and watching other consultants making mistakes and being punished for it that um, the, the, the difference between the superficial stuff and the fundamental stuff but if this is a if this is a new domain that you don't have good intuition for you can't tell the difference between the superficial stuff and the fundamental stuff and there's a very real danger that you're going to end up changing the fundamental stuff and adopting the superficial stuff and we see this all the time Uh, we'll see executives we'll see sales vps of sales they say read the book we'll love it we believe absolutely (laughs) in it uh uh but um um, the the model the the various models that you present in the book don't fit our organization. So we came up with a with our own model, but we've used all of your terminology. So we're still using the term sales coordinator, and we're still using the, the word business development manager, and so on. And we say, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. You got things the wrong way around. The titles that you assign to the people are superficial. You can change them; it doesn't matter. <laughs> but the model is not superficial. You can't change that. And, and and that's and this is a long way of answering a short question. I think the big takeaway that folks get is if they come to the workshop, they don't just get the theory, which they already got from the book. They get me and you guiding them through distinguishing between the superficial, which they can change and should change, and the fundamental, which they must not touch. And if people are listening to this and they're thinking, that's great, I haven't got the book, they can get the book from your website, can't they? Uh, from Amazon, we don't sell it on our website. They can find it on the website, but just you, you can go to the the hyphen machine hyphen book, or go to Ballistics website, uh, ballistics.com, and there's references to the book there. Or just go to Amazon yeah. and type in the machine and my name, and it it'll pop up straight Get away. It tomorrow. I don't know if it's on Amazon. It UK. is. Oh yeah, um, you're there. And you you haven't got it's not it on audio great. yet, which I have ribbed you about before. But so it's, yeah, I need to. <laughs> I tell you what, as soon as this is finished, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start reading it into the (laughs) (laughs) It'll take a while. Okay. That's, uh, that's magic. Normally I ask people what they know now that they wish they'd known before, but I've asked you that question before because you've been on before. What, um, Oh, I've got a good answer. Uh, it's a, it's about, um, the UK in when was I over there? October. September. 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 Wear cool clothes. <laughs> I never knew that before. I came with overcoats and and and, and, and what do you call them over there? Mac, a Macintosh. Mac, yeah. A Mac. A Mac. Yeah. I had a, like poncho thing. Someone, in fact, one of your staff said, "Bring a poncho. It's going to rain." So I had an overcoat. I had a poncho. I had warm sweaters, and I was like a Thanksgiving turkey. I was cooked. 
very good. What um, what have you read any good books recently? Yes, what have I read recently that's business related? I've read a f- I read a book on the Illegals program, which is have you seen that that show The Americans? No. So the, the Rus- the, the Ru- Russians use the term illegals to refer to spies. Right. And they had this r- relatively famous program that was exemplified in a, a, a TV show, a TV series called The Americans. And what they did was they took people, they took young spies straight out of, well, took young people straight out of university. They trained them up in a foreign language. They gave them a new identity and they smuggled them into countries around the world. And they had a, num- a number of them in the States, you know, five or six, mostly couples. And they lived as couples. They had children. They raised families, they ran small businesses, but they were spies. They were Russian spies. And they came up with various ways of explaining away their Russian accent. You know, they said that they went to school in Czechoslovakia or yeah. something. And, and they were very successful. Uh, they, had a, they had a number of, quite a number of these people living, I- implanted in communities, feeding information back. The only problem is that the FBI managed to turn, and strangely, the FBI, not the CIA, managed to turn a uh, Russian, or maybe it was the CIA, managed to, to, to the, the head of the program was a double A agent. <laughs> right. So the, F, the, the Americans knew about it and they monitored them for 10 years. They listened in on their calls. They monitored them before eventually rounding them all up. So for 10 years, the Russians thought that this program was undetected and working and moving along swimmingly. But pretty much the whole time they'd been well, for a significant percentage of their time, they'd been monitored. Uh, so that was a good book, but it's got nothing to do with sales. I, uh, I read it a while ago, but Zero to One springs to mind. I'm sure you've told your subscribers about that already. Go on, go on give us your take on it. Uh, so Peter Thiel is a Silicon Valley venture capitalist. He was one of the – he started the business – started a um, – he started PayPal, which merged with X – X money, X something, which was a, a competing business that Elon Musk had had. So I guess he's famous for PayPal. And uh, he was also uh, made a, made squillions out of PayPal. He was an early investor in um, um, Facebook. And he's generally regarded, him and Mark Andressen are generally regarded as sort of the oracles of uh, Silicon Valley. And I think everyone would think of, um, of Peter Thiel as being the more cerebral of the two. And in fact, he was parodied. Have you ever seen Silicon Valley, the show? Oh yeah. So anyway, he was parodied in, in the, in, in the show. So he wrote a book called zero to one. And, um, the book is, the book is basically a, a, um, a call to arms. Uh, encouraging business owners to be creative, to create something, to make something new, as opposed to pursuing incremental incrementalism. Right. Um, and he he argues that a monopoly a monopoly is not an evil thing. A monopoly is a is a necessity if you want to drive society forwards. Um, in, innovation is the fountainhead of of uh, growth and wealth and success. And innovation means inventing new stuff. In other words, going from zero to one. Okay. And the whole book is kind of a discussion of um, the, the rules associated with creation as opposed to incrementalism. Okay. And so the type of clients you work with then? I guess the type of clients I work with as well. Those growth, growth mindset rather than incrementalism? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So it's well worth I think it's well worth reading. I need to go back and read it again. Actually, it's a, it's a good, good book and and a seriously 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 clever guy. Very good. Um, if if you're interested in him, you can Google him and see him debating. Uh, there's a famous one where he berates um, the CEO at the time of Google. He gives him a hard time. He's like, well, why are you sitting there with you know two hundred thirty billion dollars in the bank? Can't you think of anything better to do with it than leave it in the bank? He, he's he's you know arguing that Google's forgotten how to innovate, and uh, um, I f- forget his name. Eric, the the hired Eric, Eric, Eric Schmidt. Schmidt. 
Eric Schmidt, yeah, is defending himself, saying, no, we have lots of programs. And, and Peter Thiel, like, no, you have $220 billion sitting in the bank. You've forgotten how to innovate. And, you know, there's only, there aren't that many people who would, would give that kind of curry to the CEO of a company like Google. But, uh, yeah, he's, you know, insanely smart and fearless. Um, so it's, I mean, Googling Peter Thiel and listen to him, he has an encyclopedic grasp of economics. He spits out numbers. He's fascinating to, uh, to watch uh, debating. There's, there's a great one where him and, uh, him and uh, Mark Andreessen uh, have, have a debate. It's also worth Very good. Fab. So uh, zero to one and some Peter Thiel action with Eric Schmidt and Mark Andreessen. Yeah. I'll go do that. That's and Mark Andressen is also another character who's worth um, – uh, he, he wrote a – that's another thing worth reading. You've probably read already. He wrote a, an op-ed, uh, I think, in the New York Times or somewhere, uh, and, and it was, again, a, another call to – it was another call to arms, go and build something. It, it was basically stop squabbling about politics and all this petty bullshit and go and build something. Yeah. We'll see if we can find that and link to that in the show notes. Very yeah. good. He did. Uh, he did speak at a conference I was at, and uh, and he swore, and the uh, the compare of the conference nearly spat his teeth out, and he he just put his hand up and he apologised. He said, "I have CEO Tourette's." <laughs> Mark Anderson yeah, apologised. Yeah. He didn't stop him swearing. He carried on. It was sort of his. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I swear yeah. I'm going to carry on swearing. It's you know, but I have this medical condition, CEO Tourette's, so it's fine. So I learned a trick when I came to the States 10, 10, 12 years ago, and and that is that you can't swear in boardrooms here, unlike Australia, unless you have permission. But it's really easy to get permission. All you have to say is, well, I I say, look, as some of you may have already figured out from my accent, I grew up in Australia, which means I swear a lot. And I say, I will endeavor not to swear over the course of this day. And, 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 and immediately you say that, somebody would say, no, you have my permission. <laughs> and then you're away. Yep, then I'm off. I can swear like a trooper the whole day and everyone <laughs> enjoys it. Very- but if it wasn't for that preamble, people would have sat, sat there looking offended and shocked. As if they'd never heard a swear word before. <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, yeah. Justin, fab to chat to you as ever. Well, this has been fun, Dominic. I can't imagine it's uh, uh, been fun for the poor <laughs> listener, but it's, you and I have had a ball. Have uh, have a great uh, have a great Christmas. I can't say holiday season. Thank have you. a great Christmas, and uh, we will see you in the new year. See you in January. Yeah, the holiday season. <laughs> I will. <laughs> I will see you at the end That's of January. That's brilliant. All right. Fantastic. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.